Thank you so much for joining us here on WDRT, listener-supported radio. You are listening to The Skeptical Naturopath with Paul Rittay and Christina DeRocher. Good morning, Paul. Hi, Christina. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Ah, fantastic. You know, it's August. The weather's perfect. And yeah, summer is slipping away. Winter's I've coming, seen. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard a couple of people say that already. Summer's slipping away. It's early August, friends. It's still early August. Still early. Enjoy it when you can. Indeed. So we're going to talk about lazy, lazy summer? No, lazy digestion. Lazy digestion, yeah. So I, I, I didn't really know what to call it. Weak digestion? I think I call it weak digestion, lazy digestion. Is it, you know, what happens? You know, this digestive system of ours that we completely take for granted and we just expect it to work the way that it's, I guess, supposed to work and we live our life kind of oblivious to that and oblivious to the fact that it is a really important thing and it's, uh, you know, as I've kind of talked about, the second brain, perhaps it's even the first brain, Mm -hmm. but how important it is to our day-to-day function, right? I mean, it's how we get energy. It's how we, you know, convert food into energy and that's a really important thing. Yeah, I was going to say, no, I think no matter what you call it, we all know what you're referencing. <laughs> We've <laughs> yes. all had this experience at one time or another that we that we have problems with our digestion, and that's about the time when we realize that we do take it for granted. Yeah, and I think digestion, is it is it out of a weakness? Is it because we don't have this uh, ability to digest, or is it because we've sort of blown out that system because we've abused it from too many calories, maybe too many of the wrong calories, and we could spend a long time debating what wrong calories are. But this idea that we're in an overconsumption mode, right? Not an underconsumption mode, right? Because I think human history was about not getting enough. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. And it's sort of this idea of feast and famine, too. Our, our biochemistry is really designed to deal with. When we have food available to us, we eat it. But then when we don't have food available to us, we adapt to being able to go longer without eating. And it seems that the way we do things now is like we're constantly eating. Yes, constant eating occasions. Yeah, grocery stores within walking distance, marketing on every television program. Yeah, I feel like before you go into a grocery store, you should test your blood glucose. And if your blood glucose is low, you should not go into the grocery store. Go home and have a meal first. (laughs) Exactly. Eat first and then go to the grocery store. You'll be less, you know, less... uh, um, Apt to buy filler food. Correct. Thank you. Anyway, so this is this digestive system that's perhaps gotten, you know, we get into trouble with that because it's an overconsumption thing rather than a deficiency, right? Or sort of an excess. And I don't think we've really adapted to the excess Mm-hmm. We haven't right, right. We haven't developed that McDonald's gene yet. And and some dietary programs purport that you should be like a cow, that you should be grazing all day, and that it's better to eat many small meals than it is to eat three larger meals. Have you heard that before? For sure. This is a, a deal with uh, when we talk about reactive hypoglycemia, mm-hmm. you know, right? Or this idea that your blood sugar falls, you become hangry. Right. Yes. And the hangry is a real thing. I'm mm-hmm. not debating that it doesn't happen, and eating helps that. So then you get into this point to say, well, I'm going to eat so that I don't get hangry, right? And I know if I don't eat within two hours, that something something bad's going to happen, so let's prevent it from happening. Right, even without hunger, I'm going to preemptively have a snack. Exactly, and that leads to the grazing aspect. But think about it. I mean, a cow has a really long digestive system. And four stomachs. Four stomachs. So they're constantly digesting food. Mm-hmm. Humans, we don't have that long of a digestive tract. So we're not 
digesting all the time. So even though the cow is not eating, the cow's digesting and getting energy from their stomach contents, right, or their intestinal contents. Mm-hmm. Orangutans would be another example of that, right? Orangutans are vegetarians. But do you know how much food they eat, the no. bulk of their food? Oh, my God, they eat tremendous amounts of food. Huh. And they have a long digestive tract, longer than humans. Okay. And they're constantly fermenting, right? So there's a lot of bacteria there. They're fermenting. They actually get a lot of energy from these short-chain fatty acids, which is the byproduct of their, micro- their microbiome, right, their bacteria working on the food substance that they're eating. So they eat tremendous amounts of fiber, and, you know, they eat lots of food mm-hmm. to be able to get the energy that they need. But so that uh, there's this sort of, I, I don't know that you call it balance, a symbiosis, right, between the their microbiome or their bacteria and then being able to turn the fiber into energy because we we often think about that right we eat fiber and we don't get energy from fiber no it makes us regular that's what we learn yeah exactly and depending on the kind of fiber yes if it's water soluble water insoluble what have you but really the part of the aspect of fiber is that our digestive enzymes don't break down the fiber so we don't break them down in the upper gi but our microbiome can do that. Yeah, so our bacteria has the ability to ferment those, the, the fiber, right? The carbohydrates, right? Fiber is a carbohydrate, is able to ferment those carbohydrates. And then the byproduct of that is a short-chain fatty acid. So a common short-chain fatty acid is coconut oil, for example, right? Coconut oil is actually said MCT, right? Medium-chain triglyceride. Okay. So it means it's a shorter chain fat. There's not as many molecules that make the fatty acid. Butter is another example, too. So butter has a lot of what's called but- butyric acid in it, which is a very, it's the shortest chain. So it's a short chain fatty acid. That's different than when we eat an avocado or we eat olive oil or we eat, you know, bacon. We're getting long chain fats okay, that our body has to deal with. What's, oh, okay. Okay. So it's easier for us to deal with butter than bacon. Correct. Easier to digest. Okay. Less for us to do. But what's interesting is that's a short-chain fatty acid. That's a byproduct of the, of the microbiome, the bacteria in our large intestine fermenting, eating the, the fiber that we can't digest. Huh. So our bacteria can digest it, and it creates short-chain fatty acids, and those short-chain fatty acids can actually be absorbed in the large intestine and be used for the, by the body for energy. Okay. So it's already sort of a myth that we don't get any energy from fiber. It's more indirect. Right. It's an indirect source. And the short-chain fatty acids is really beneficial for the intestinal cells themselves. So the intestinal cells, I mean, think of it, your, well, think of it, the way your gut is, is your intestinal tract is only one cell thick. So typically when you absorb something, when you absorb something that's been digested, it goes through into the intestinal cell so transver- it traverses one membrane and then in through the intestinal cell, and then it has to go out the other side of the intestinal cell. So it actually crosses the membrane twice, into the cell and out of the cell. And the intestinal cell can take what it wants from that. So the intestinal cell gets first shot, right? They get first, first dibs at the table <laughs> to say, oh, I'm going to use some of those short-chain fatty acids, or I'll use some glutamine. You've heard of glutamine? Mm-hmm. So glutamine's an amino acid. We, we talk about it, we use it all the time in, in you know, my world for leaky gut, right, or intestinal permeability, that, oh, well, you have holes in your intestinal tract and you're not absorbing things properly and things are getting through. I mean, that's a simplistic explanation. I think it's, 
true to a, an extent, right? A, a little bit overly simplified. But glutamine is something that we use to kind of, quote unquote, heal leaky gut. Oh, okay. And it's just a, it's just an amino acid. So it's a protein, right? It's one of the Lego blocks that we eat. But glutamine, the issue is, is that it gets absorbed into the intestinal cell, and the intestinal cell says, "Ooh, I like glutamine. I'm going to keep this for myself." So it really helps, kind of, the intestinal cell itself become stronger. Right? And what foods are is glutamine in? Well, I mean, a variety of things, right? So it's just an amino acid. I don't know that there's, you know. And so, if you were healing leaky gut, you would take glutamine itself. Yeah, you take it, it as a supplement, okay. right? So then the idea is you take it by itself, and but but that's just an example of how the intestinal cell will extract things first before it gets into the circulation for the rest of the body. Which is an indicator of how important it is, I would assume. Yeah, at least important to the intestinal cell. And, and understand that those intestinal cells are really important, right? It's basically what separates us from, you know, what's outside of us, right? We kind of think, oh, we eat it, it's inside our body. It's really not inside our body yet, it's in a lumen, right? We have a tube, yeah. an imaginated tube, and what's in that tube is not in us yet, until we break it down and then absorb it. So we have choice, right? Or do we eliminate it? So we put something in that tube that we don't want, we hope it comes out the other end. Right. Yeah, but, but anyway, so long story short, back to the orangutans, right? So those orangutans, they tr create a tremendous amount of their energy from that fermentation in their, in their microbiome, from breaking down the fiber. Mm -hmm. They get a lot of energy, a lot of calories from that. We don't get as many that way, but we don't have a really long digestive tract. Ours is shorter. Mm -hmm. And again, on a, so orangutans are omnivores, or not omnivores, they're, car, uh, they're, they're vegetarian. vegetarian. But on the flip side, then we have lions. Carnivores. Carnivores. You know, lions are carnivores, and you look at their digestive tract, it's really short. Really short. Really yeah. short. So they're all about, hey, look, I don't got a lot of time or space to ferment things. I need to get what I need to get, and I'm going to extract what I need, and I'm going to get it pretty quickly. Right. So I'm going to extract that and utilize that and clear it from my digestive tract rather quickly. Completely different, mm -hmm. right? And so what should we be eating then? We're somewhere in between. Somewhere in between, right? We're omnivores. Yeah. So we've adapted that we have a microbiome and we can live on vegetables, vegetarian, but on the flip side, we also have strong stomach acid and other things to be able to deal with more of a meat-based diet, right? More of a carnivore diet, mm -hmm. right? So, and again, now we spend a lot of time debating this. Yes. Oh, well, should I be carnivore or should I be vegetarian? And which way is right and which way is wrong? I mean, I don't know the answer to this. Well, the answer would be, it depends on who you are. Isn't that right? Perhaps. Perhaps all our digestive tracts are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Perhaps some of us are more attuned to have a shorter digestive tract and maybe be more having stronger stomach acid versus somebody that's got a longer digestive tract and maybe, maybe more vegetarian. That would sort of fall in line with the blood type diet. Yes, if you know the blood type diet from mm -hmm. long ago, that's still, it's like your blood type kind of indicates what you should be eating. Perhaps that's part of the adaptation. I think it's simplistic to say, oh, my blood type is, you know, an A, I should be a vegetarian. But there's perhaps that that's part of that adaptation, part of adapting to your surroundings and the, and the food that you're eating in affects that blood type, right? So the blood type is sort of a secondary response rather than the primary, right? So having the blood type may give you some sort of indication, Pointers. but... But again, it's adaptation. So should we be eating animals? Should we be eating plants? Or then we say exclusively, right? So vegetarian means I never eat meat, or carnivore means I never eat a plant. Yeah. Right? So we have the opposite. We're on, honestly, we're omnivores. 
which means we've been adapted to eating one or the other. Right. We can. We can. Right. And now we say, well, you should versus I can. Right. And what what makes me work better or not work better? And then we get into all sorts of, well, here's the health benefits of doing this or doing that. And it's just perhaps, you know, doesn't matter. And sh are we supposed to be carnivore and just eating meat all the time? Because it's pretty popular right now. I yes. know. I know. I have, I have a family member, actually. <laughs> yes, right. Who's been doing it for, gosh, I want to say two, three years now. Yeah. And Exclusively and, meat. Yeah, right. And <laughs> so is the benefit because you're eating meat or is the benefit because you took something else out? Well, and yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, in macrobiotics, we would say that People felt better when they stopped eating meat completely because they had been overdoing it for so many years. And that then, you know, once they regulated, they would, you know, go back to eating some meat, right? We're talking about, you know, standard, standard, I don't know, <laughs> standard people who maybe have meat three times a day, right? And they would come exactly. to macrobiotics and macrobiotics isn't huge on meat. You know, 20% of your diet might be meat. Um, and so I wonder, especially with my with my spiritual father, if he's going to come back to, you know, because he was macrobiotic for 35 years. Yeah, that's right? curious. And yes. so now he's only eating meat. And I wonder if at some point he may not say, okay, that was great. I got everything I needed. I'm, you know, kind of, quote, unquote, balanced out the 35 years of eating almost no meat. And now I'm going to do an omnivore again. I, I kind of can't imagine that it won't go that way because it just seems so extreme. Yes, and I think our human experience when of feast and famine and the idea is we're going to eat what's available to us. And we would spend resources to hunt animals and whether that's ethical or not ethical, but it's if it's survival or we're part of the food chain or however you want to look at that. And again, they would go days, maybe weeks without harvesting an animal. What would they eat? What would they eat in the in-between? Berries and They'd fruit. Berries and legumes fruit. And, and, and that's... Yeah, roots. Is that more work? For I, sure. Right? So then now you're harvesting things, you're digging them up, you're digging up tubers that you got to go under the ground to find. Preparation and, is sometimes more than meat, Exactly. And yeah. meat, I, again, I think the original human diet was like eating raw meat, right? We didn't cook. Cook is a human invention. Right. Does that mean we shouldn't cook our food? I, I don't know. I'm just saying that, you know, how much work, how much of our resources do we expend on that? But if you kill a large animal... That's a tremendous amount of protein and fat and other things that you're going to get that that's like density versus you're eating plants, which tend to be less dense. Mm -hmm. But then if you find a tuber, that's going to be more dense, right? You eat green leaves and you eat, you know, well, berries are going to have, you know, carbohydrate in them, but a tuber is going to be even a denser source, right? Because it's where the plant stores its energy. So you'd want to eat that to get that energy source. Yeah, so perhaps it was one that we just adapted based on what was available to us and that maybe we eat meat once every two weeks, but when we have meat, we eat a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Or honey, this is like the Hadza in Africa. Yes, the Hadza, they, you know, 15% of their diet is honey. This has been brought up in carnivore circles and this kind of thing, right, right. about right. what they eat. And actually, um, it's a great book on this called Burn, too, about how we have sort of our energy expenditure is restrained. There's a, a, there's kind of a theory, hypothesis behind that. And he uses the Hadza as the example. But anyways, a Hadza will eat honey. And 15% of their diet is honey. The thing is, that's the average over the year that 15% of their calories come from honey. But they don't have honey available right. all the time. <laughs> they don't have their little When they find table. honey, yeah. when they find it, that's all they eat. Yes. So perhaps for three days or seven days, I don't know. 
their their diet is 100% honey. Right. But then for three months, it's 0%. It averages out to 15%. We say, oh, well, we should eat 15% of our diet as honey every day instead of saying, well, maybe we'd binge it when it was available and then we wouldn't eat it. Right. It's like eating blueberries in February. Right. How do you eat a blueberry in February in Wisconsin? You, it doesn't you grow there. It yeah. was because it was frozen, it was dried, or it was shipped from Chile, or you know something along those lines. Because you know uh, that's what we do, and somehow we think that blueberries trump everything. Instead of where, wow, blueberries are in season. I'm going to eat them. I'm going to I'm going to stock up, right? Or I'm going to stock up and per- perhaps get fat from it. Right. Right. We store fat because now we're prepared for the famine. I I, I don't know, but. But, but regardless, you know, our digestive tract is omnivorous from a human p- potential. So we have the ability to ferment those carbohydrates. And yet, on the other hand, we have this strong stomach acid that allows us to eat a denser source of protein, an animal source, and be able to break that down. Curious with vegetarians that they tend to have lower hydrochloric acid, that they adapt to not eating meat. Mm-hmm. But they go back to eating meat, then their hydrochloric acid levels will come back up. Mm-hmm. But... It was, as long as we're talking about digestion, right, this is part of that lazy digestion thing, right? When I say weak or lazy digestion, that perhaps we've blown out the system and now we've lost the ability to really have that strong digestive fire to break things down. Yes, and this is the who's, upper who's GI. Who's we and, I mean, like, you're, you're talking about people in general. And people in general with digestive issues, okay. yes. Yeah. I mean, again, clinically speaking, I see lots of digestive issues, but understand... Conventional medicine is not so good at looking at the improving function in the digestive tract. They're good at saying, oh, you have too much stomach acid, let's block it. You have inflammation, let's you know, deal with the inflammation. And that's fine, right? And, and diagnosing things. They're right. really good at that. But improving function, maybe not their strong suit. And improving function means that how do I digest the food that I eat? Right? This is part of that second brain thing. And understand, we eat carbohydrates, we eat fats, we eat proteins. And protein is probably the most difficult, the hardest molecule for us to break down. Furthest, oh, furthest away from furthest our... A really complex molecule mm-hmm. that we have to really exert some force to break that down. And hydrochloric acid plays a really important role in that, yes. And, and so protein, protein of the macronutrients is the one we can't live without. We need it. And protein's rather flexible because we use it as a building block. But we can also use that to make glucose, which is kind of, we don't remember, or you know, that's maybe more complex biochemistry, but that we can take protein and turn it into glucose if we need to. So if we need energy, we can take that building block, right, that mm-hmm. protein molecule, and turn it into glucose. So that's its second tier of importance. Like, like second say. tier of importance. And if you're fasting, that becomes more of a prominent importance, right? Because if you're not getting any fat, uh, any fat or carbohydrate, you're going to rely on protein. But anyways, we have to have protein. And protein really, you know, um, hard, you know, large, not even necessarily large, complex molecule. And we learned this in biochemistry. There's all these different structures in the protein that we have to, like, break down and, and do this. So it's, 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 it's difficult, right? Or it requires a lot of energy. And hydrochloric acid is kind of the start of that. So when you eat protein, and again, understand that animal protein is a denser source than plant protein, right? So plant protein, we also have to break down, same kind of thing, right? On some level, we need to remove 
all of the animal nature or all of the plant nature from the protein that we're eating and absorb that so that we don't react to it. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about food allergies or maybe food sensitivities, that's kind of a, you know, it gets a little messy, like what do we mean between a food allergy and a food sensitivity? But for all intents and purposes, if your immune system is now engaged in seeing some foreign protein as, as foreign and then it reacts to it, that's an allergy or a sensitivity. So the way to get around that is if you completely digest the protein and there's no animal or protein or plant residue there, let's call that, right, or it's broken down into the individual amino acids, there's no, reactive, no reactivity to it. So food allergies and sensitivities are a, are a um, what's the word I want, consequence of poor digestion. That's a part of it, right? And it's a tolerance piece too, right? When we start talking about this, how much do you tolerate something? How much tolerance is there in your digestive tract to eat some gluten, to mm -hmm. eat some dairy, mm -hmm. right? I mean, gluten and dairy. I mean, I, I'm a naturopath. I mean, you don't have to come and see me. I'm going to say you got a health problem. Take out gluten, dairy, and soy and see what happens. Like, just do that on your own. It may not be, but I mean, just like start hedge there. your bets and say, <laughs> hey, if I take that out, maybe I have a problem digesting gluten. Like, where did that come from? And perhaps it's just we've lost the tolerance to be able to digest gluten properly. And it's a protein, right? It's the protein that's in there that creates all, wreaks havoc on our immune system. And we're like, oh, I can't eat gluten. But perhaps if you've got the digestive system stronger, you'd be able to tolerate gluten. Now, I don't see that, yes, but it's also possible that we've been eating gluten for 40 years. And perhaps it's the kind of gluten, perhaps it's other things that we're doing, perhaps it's a combination of all sorts of other things, but it manifests as a gluten intolerance. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a glyphosate that's in the gluten, maybe it's because we use dwarf wheat that's been bred to have high gluten content, right? These are, these are the things that we do. I mean, we manipulate our food chain to right. have higher yield, yes? I mean, I'm not saying that's bad, I'm just saying we're dealing with p potential residual effects from that interesting and the idea that the loss of tolerance to gluten and once you're there now it's like well now i can't eat gluten i mean i've seen people that eat gluten for 40 years and then all of a sudden now i can't eat it hmm. well where did that come from did it just happen like that or was it a slow gradual i've lost tolerance i've lost tolerance i've lost tolerance we say that with peanut allergies for example they've done some studies where where you know the anaphylaxis from peanuts right i mean going to public school it's almost like no peanuts ever because there's you know lots of incidents of allergies on that but they take children that they've typed to be you know potentially anaphylactic with peanuts and they give them small amounts of peanuts right they're trying to build the tolerance mm. piece and they found that that can be successful on that so dose. yeah home, homeopathic or kind of hormesis right this hormesis is that low dose stimulation or high dose inhibition but the whole idea is that it's like you, you, you build the tolerance by seeing it. Hmm. I mean, that's our immune system too, right? We build the immune system by seeing things, not right. by avoiding things. Right. right? But anyway, so this is an important thing when it comes in that digestive tract is what's our tolerance. Lactose being dairy then is another one, but that's the milk sugar. That's not a protein now, but lactose intolerance is the inability to break down lactose. So he can't break down that sugar. So it's not really an immune reactivity thing, but it's a localized gut reaction. So people will have, you know, lots of GI issues when they eat dairy or they drink milk and they drink lactose-free milk and then it's not a problem or they take their lactase pill, which I can do, right? So I'm lactose intolerant. And if I drink milk, I'm going to have a problem. Even if I drink raw milk, I still have a problem. So that lactose is difficult for me to deal with. But if I eat yogurt, no problem. 
Because it's fermented. It, because the bacteria has worked on it, it's not an issue for me. I can eat I can eat goat milk. I can drink goat milk and goat cheese, no problem. But cow's milk, no, I have a problem. Cheese, I have a problem. I mean, cream and butter seem not to be problems with me, but there's not a lot of lactose in them, right? Cream is basically just fat, as is butter. So if there's not as much carbohydrate in it, there's not as much lactose. But but again, regardless, that's my digestive system, and I think I inherited that, so that's just like this weakness to break down lactose. And that's, that's an, another piece. So we see, we blame the gluten in the dairy, but really it's like, what's going on in our digestive tract? Or have I even adapted to produce more lactase, which is the enzyme I need to break down lactose? No, not naturally, but if I take my pill, then I can go eat ice cream. So I'm like, oh, I'm fine as long as I take my, my lactase with it. And I don't know that's the right answer, but it allows me to have some tolerance to ice cream, but I get to choose that, yes. And <laughs> ice cream medicine. too, right? And ice cream's too sweet, but that's another story. But, but anyway, so getting back to the hydrochloric acid, so hydrochloric acid plays this role to like create a, a pH of, you know, 0.8. You remember your pH scale? Yeah. Low pH means really acidic. Mm-hmm. So we need a really acidic stomach, especially dealing with animal protein, right? Because we got to unravel it, right? Break we it have down. to, un- we have to break it down. And it's actually not the hydrochloric acid that does the breakdown. The hydrochloric acid creates an environment that activates an enzyme that then breaks down the protein. Within your stomach. Within your stomach. Well, and that enzyme, so we call it a zymogen. That's the fancy word, right? $2 medical word. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So zymogen means it's inactive, and then something happens to activate that enzyme. This one, it's called pepsin, is the active. Can we just take a moment to deeply appreciate the wisdom of the human body. I mean, this is just, right? I mean, it's incredible. The more you learn about it, the more you realize that we have so much, we, we, we can have so much gratitude for what's happening as we're busy, you know, at our nine to five with our children out at the beach, you know, going to bed at night. I mean, it's amazing. Really, I, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I really didn't know that. As but. my 12-year-old would say, wow. Yes. I mean, it's, <laughs> well it put, is. Well put, Gabriel. And we just take that for granted, yes? So yeah. we do this and we just, you know, live our life and eat whatever we want and think we can get away with that. And what, what's the consequences of this? Yes? Yeah. So, so go back. You were saying now when we eat meat, I don't want to get you derailed here. When we eat meat, it's not even the hydrochloric acid. The hydrochloric acid triggers or stimulates... The z- pepsin. Okay, the pepsin. Okay, now you used a Z word. It's a zymogen. Okay. Do we need to take a break, though? Because you said that. Oh, yes, we do reminder. need to take a break. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to listener-supported WDRT. You're listening to The Skeptical Naturopath with Paul Rattay and Christina DeRocher, who is thoroughly immersed in the subject matter. On September 9th, you're not going to want to miss here in the... Commons on Jefferson Street in Viroqua, September 9th at 8.30. Uh, Paul Rattay will be giving a lecture called Certainty, The Limits of Nutritional Research. So from 8.30 to 9, he will take questions and provide answers to audience members of any color or stripe. And from 9 to 10, he'll give a lecture, which he would appreciate, a free will donation. So again, that's um, September 9th is the next one of a series. He'll be doing it through December. And this one is The Limits of Nutritional Research.
Thank you for reminding me. I was six minutes late. <laughs> Whoops. No problem. You said it's time to take a break and look at the wonder and the awe of the human body, yes? And it go. is. It's amazing when you learn these things, and yet we, we ignore them. But back to hydrochloric acid. So that pH of 0.8, it allows pepsinogen. Pepsinogen is the zymogen, so it's inactive. Pepsinogen turns into pepsin. It's okay. activated in that low pH environment. So in that acid environment, pepsin becomes active, and then it's like Pac-Man du jour, right? Mm -hmm. It just breaks down the protein bonds. It is fantastic. But then it's neutralized again in an alkaline environment. So when it gets to the small intestine, that changes. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the interesting, like, why do we have that? Like, why would that be? Why would we want pepsin to only be activated in a low acid environment or a high acid, low pH environment? W w what do you think? Why would that be? I, I'm a teacher. I have yeah, to I was going to say, oh my goodness, I'm not in one of your classes though. <laughs> I don't have any background information. I did know that though. I'm going to brag for a moment, and I did know that it it changes from yin to yang as it goes through the digestive tract. In other words, something is acid, and then it's alkaline, and then it's acid, and then it's alkaline. But I don't know what the benefit is for it to be. I mean, I guess I'm going to throw a silly answer out there and say it, it needs to be triggered by this particular aspect because otherwise it would be in your gut all the time. Yes, and what would be the problem in that it were active in your gut all the time? Well, it would it would start to eat away at the stomach lining. Exactly, that's exactly it. Okay. See, there you go, okay. right? You knew the answer. All right. It'll chew a hole in your intestinal lining, and your stomach is designed to have lots of acid and designed to have pepsin there. If you look at what those cells look oh. like, there's a lot of mucus there. The cells are thicker. It's just completely different. They have different cell types, right? When we in medical school, we take histology where we look at the cells, we mm -hmm. look at what the cell, and then you see the different cell types. It's interesting. I teach, and the histology professor who teaches histology, I say, I, you know, and she loves me because I say, oh my God, histology is the most important thing that I took in medical school. I'm, I'm still curious why we started with it. Why do we not end with it? Because then we can actually understand the function, and then we see these cells, or we see that adaptation that happens in our body. I'm like, oh my God, that's like magic, yeah. or that's another point that you, you just come to appreciate that. But anyway, so the stomach is well designed to withstand acid and to withstand pepsin. Pepsin's not gonna chew a hole in your stomach unless you have Helicobacter pylori, which is a bacteria which can burrow in there and create some havoc, and there another are, story. Yeah, and there are other aspects of this that I feel like now I'm vaguely understanding when people do have situations where their stomach lining is getting eaten away and things yes. like that. This is when things go haywire because those things are there and they're triggered only by certain occurrences, but if they aren't in a good way, if they aren't in a healthy way, I can imagine there would be major problems, right? Exactly. Because you're dealing with very strong um, substances. Yeah. So let's talk about hydrochloric acid, so how important it is, right? So it creates an environment that it activates pepsin. Obviously, that's like Number one. Number one. Other things. So it's going to neutralize bacteria that you come in contact with. So how much bacteria do you think we get in the food that we eat? Untold amounts. There's actually a new special on Netflix called The Poisons We Eat or something oh like God. that. And it's about E. coli and how, how all of this happens and how easy it is to spread, even from person to person. I didn't know that. It, it, you know, if somebody eats something with E. coli, 
they can actually spread it through their own, you know, mucous membranes. I guess yes. it makes sense, but I thought it would only be food, you know, food oriented. So again, it's a susceptibility thing, right? So you eat toxic, you eat food that's poisoned and some people will get sick from it. Other people will not get sick right. and elderly and children tend yes. to be the ones that get sicker. But I would say, what's their stomach acid status? Yes. The stronger their stomach acid, the more resistant, the more resilient they'll be, and maybe that doesn't trigger because they eliminate it. Another reason why we want stomach acid, right? It's it's a you know it protects us. Buffer, right? Mm -hmm. What else does it do? It's also a trigger for the small intestine. So this is a really important thing too. So when you have that acid load and it churns right in your stomach, it mixes and you end up with what's called chyme is the kind of the liquid byproduct of stomach digestion. C-H-I-M-E. Yeah, that's right. I've read up on some of this stuff. There you go. Through macrobiotics. Yeah, so chyme <laughs> is then this, this, the, the slurry, if you want to think about it that way. And then that's released from the stomach into the small intestine. And that chyme is really acidic. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, it's low pH, it's where it's designed. And that chyme, that acid load hitting the small intestine, the small intestine says, whoa, this is a problem, right? This is way too acid for me. And there's some pepsin here. We don't like pepsin. Pepsin's going to chew a hole here. So what happens? They, right, does it trigger then what the small intestine needs? Exactly. So the pancreas is triggered. So the pancreas is triggered, and that's where you produce the digestive enzymes, right? That's where we tend to, you know, that's the digestive enzymes that finish off fat, protein, carbohydrate digestion, and that's from the pancreas. So that acid load is triggering the pancreas to say, oh, wow, we got to produce digestive enzymes because along with that comes bicarbonate. Oh. So bicarbonate is the neutralizer. Baking so soda? Exactly, <laughs> same kind of thing. So bicarbonate is what, the, what will be secreted from the pancreas in order to neutralize that chyme. Right, okay. So understand that the more acidic the chyme is, the stronger the signal that is to the pancreas. Mm -hmm. So if we want the pancreas to work better, you actually want to have stronger stomach acid. Okay. Does it make sense? Yes. So instead of taking digestive enzymes, which you can do, right? And digestive enzymes can help. Don't get me wrong, but that's a replacement therapy. So you, now you're you saying... You want to strengthen your... But we want to strengthen your own second brain to produce that as needed and have this system working, right? And it's kind of like not so much of a... Sen well, it is a sensory system. I guess I oh, can't absolutely. say that it's sensory, but, right? I mean, but not it's a in the chemical way that we response. Think, yeah, not in the way that we think of our senses, but it is. There, There is a sensation, right? A sensing going on, and then there's a reaction to it. For sure. So how do we do that, Paul? So How do we that, strengthen ourselves? Yeah, well, that's a good question, right? And so, but what do what what's prescribed to millions of Americans in this country? I mean, not even prescribed. You can go buy it over the counter. What's a common complaint? Digestive complaint. Um, um, I have indigestion. Indigestion. Indigestion, or what else? Even maybe a little bit further. Uh, diarrhea. Uh, yeah, Sorry. even more common than that. It comes from the stomach. Uh, ulcers? Eh, how about heartburn? Oh, heartburn, right. Or gastroesophageal right. Cause reflux disease. Because is that Prilosec? I keep, exactly. I keep hearing the Prilosec commercial oh, yeah. in my head. That's because they, they did a good job. I know yes. they did. Yeah. I've never taken it, and I never would. But and You know it. <laughs> but I know it. They're always at a fairground. They're always at a fairground, Paul. And I always say to myself, if you are eating food at a fairground, yeah. you should look at your choices there first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so GERD, right? Gastroesophageal reflux disease, right? Heartburn. So what is heartburn? heartburn right. So heartburn is this idea that you have too much acid, or, or, or that's the, the common thought of it. 
But let's take a look at that a little bit differently, because this is where people will think I'm crazy, right? And I'm not the only one, right? This is, but this is, let's, let's call it applied biochemistry or applied physiology. So the stomach's got a valve on both ends, right? There's a top valve and a bottom valve. So the top valve is called the lower esophageal sphincter. So that's a valve between your stomach and your esophagus. And then you have the pyloric sphincter, which is the valve between your stomach and your small intestine. So we've already kind of talked about that, right? So that's where that chyme gets dumped into the small intestine. And again, that acid in the stomach, that acid in the small intestine is not a good thing, but the body has the ability to respond to it and neutralize yeah, it. Yeah, right. Okay, so that's the valve on the lower end. Then the valve on the upper end, right, the lower esophageal sphincter. So that's a valve that become, can become kind of loosey-goosey, right? So it loses its function. It kind of stays open. Now, that could happen in the pyloric sphincter too, but let's just look at the lower esophageal sphincter. And then you get acid from the stomach or the chyme in the stomach, and it gets into your esophagus. Oh. That's not a good thing because you don't have any protection in your esophagus. You don't have any way to neutralize the acid in your esophagus. Right, and it burns. And it burns. Because it's acid yes. coming up into your esophagus. Yes. Your esophagus. But understand we have some things working in our favor. For example, gravity. Right. We're upright creatures, so it's harder for the chyme to go upwards. Right. But it can. But then when we lay down, then Easy. we have an issue. Right. Easy and so then as people, they eat before they go to bed, they go to bed, and then they get lots of reflux. Oh. So then they say, oh, I'll put cinder blocks under your bed so you're <laughs> at an angle, and that just has gravity work for you better, right? I mean, that's simple. Right. Simple. I mean, yeah, that's great. But the issue, again, is this, there's this acid in the esophagus. Now, the question is, is that too much acid? Well, I If it's think too so. much acid, then we give you things to block acid, right? And you can do the simple things, antacids. You can take proton pump inhibitors, right? That's the, you, you know, the, H2, the H2 blockers, which were first, they're all over the counter now. Then the proton pump inhibitors... And those are things that are basically going to work to break, you know, to, to limit acid production, to turn off acid production. That doesn't sound like a good idea. Well, if you have too much acid, it may help, yes? Right, but long-term, isn't, isn't it going to mess with the pH yes. when, you, when you continue to eat meat and you need that strength? Yes. So the question is, is it too much acid or is it possible it's just acid in the wrong place? Like, what is too much acid? And again, I'm not saying that Prilosec and all these PPIs don't help people. They do help people. They help the symptoms. Sure, sure. But they are never treating the cause. Right. Because really, acid in the stomach, unless you have H, you know, Helicobacter pylori or something along those lines, most of the time it's not a stomach thing. It's because it's in the esophagus. Right. And what we want to do is we want that valve to work better. Yes, we want that lower esophageal sphincter to close. Yes. Like shut down. Mm -hmm. People can have a hiatal hernia where the, you know, the stomach basically outpouches up into the esophagus and now you're secreting into the stomach but again it's because into that the valve, esophagus you mean in the esophagus sorry that's okay. and that's the you know that's the loosey-goosiness of this lower esophageal sphincter so are there you know like what are they so have? what do we do yeah, yes yeah. right so again on some level how i look at that is it's possible that people could have a, a, a loosey-goosey lower esophageal sphincter because they don't have enough acid Whoa, wait a minute. That's like, you mean you'd give acid to somebody that has reflux and it makes them better? 
this is more of the homeopathic dose uh, idea. No, really not. No? It's that, I mean, I'm trying to, I got to wrap my, my brain around this because I've seen this clinically, right? I've seen people that you give hydrochloric acid to that they get worse. There's other people you give hydrochloric acid to and they get better. So I don't know that I always have the answer to say that this works or this doesn't work, but on, I find a, a lot that people actually take acid or something to increase acid production and they, their heartburn goes away, which seems completely counterintuitive, counter but somehow it has that effect on that valve. And I think what happens is if you don't have enough stomach acid, your stomach works a lot harder and it's like churning and churning. I mean, if you saw your stomach on a motion x-ray, you'd be like, oh my God, it's like doing somersaults. And I don't feel any of that because you don't have any nerve endings. You have no idea what's going on. But when you do that and you keep doing this and churning, and let's say you don't have enough stomach acid, so you're churning more and longer and this kind of thing, that eventually, it boom. Weakens, yeah, and the it, valve and it weakens gets, the muscles around it yeah, too, and right? The, and the valve so points are the weak point in the stomach, right? I mean, those are going to be the points. If you push on that stomach, the valves are going to be what gives first before anything else. Right. So it's possible that the part of that is just due to poor hydrochloric acid status. And so what literally is the acid that you give a patient? Well, you can give hydrochloric acid. So you can actually give hydrochloric acid. And they're in capsules. And again, you open that, you're going to burn a hole in your skin. Right. Right. Oh, you're like, whoa. But but the whole idea is you swallow it. And it's we don't want it to open in your esophagus that that actually is in the stomach. And people can feel better from that. Wow. Now, again... Part of this is an NO1, right? How I would approach this is like, hey, maybe I give you a hydrochloric acid, I make you worse. Wrong story. I apologize, but I'm going to know that after one dose. I'm not going to like continue to do that. So it becomes a little bit trial and error. Yeah. But that's replacement therapy. Yeah. So that's now you're taking hydrochloric acid that your body should be producing. The question is, how can we get your body to produce it and not have to give you hydrochloric acid? Okay. Do you know the answer to that? Very commonly used for digestive issues. Oh, I don't have digestive issues. Bitters. Bitters. Oh, I should have known that with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Digestive bitters. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, even the Angostura bitters that you put in Manhattan, yes? The Angostura yes. bitters, the Swedish bitters. So these are the Swedes are taking their little aperitif before they, draw, before they eat because they're getting something really bitter to stimulate hydrochloric acid production. Got it. Maybe they wanted the alcohol with it too. But but regardless, the <laughs> yeah. bitter the bitters have that ability to increase acid production. Got it. And the the research even suggests you don't have to taste it. I always thought you had to taste it. In other words, leave it in your mouth for a moment. Yeah, that the the stronger the taste, the more activity it has. But it doesn't matter. You have receptors even for that in the stomach that'll work. But I I still think the tasting is a good thing, right? There's like the idea that I am getting something bitter. Mm -hmm. But understand, bitter substances in humans, we eat something bitter. We're like, oh, that's poisonous. Oh yeah, dandelion greens. Yes, might. exactly. <sighs> I, I want to love them. Yeah, but you have to build that tolerance, yes, so that you've got to incorporate some of that. And maybe you don't need everything bitter, but this is what Gabriel and I do at home, right? We have the little bitter contest where we have all the tinctures that are all bitter, <laughs> and we try them, and we'll put a couple drops on the tongue. So we have wormwood, and we have um, dandelion. I mean, we have all sorts of different things Chicory, that we try. Right? Chicory, uh, Do you know what the most bitter substance is, though? Uh, no, I don't. Gentian. Oh, oh, gentian is by far the most bitter. M more bitter than wormwood, more oh. bitter than um, even coptis is a Chinese herb that's really bitter. But gentian is by far. I mean, one drop will just like, whoa. <laughs> but again, we're trying to engage that. We're trying to taste that, right? And this is part of just 
balancing foods too, right? I mean, eating bitter foods by themselves, but eating bitter foods that are incorporated with other things, like how do we like make that not only taste good, but it's also has potential healing effect, or, you know, well, healing or just stimulating effect, right? It, it's, it's a digestive hygiene to eat these bitter things. So this is kind of a silly question maybe, but you know, my daughter won't go for, yeah, I'm watching the time, believe me. <laughs> my daughter won't go for bitter things, but if I put it in a stew, even if it's slightly, you know, cooked, that counts, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah, now and I'm again, you don't, don't even have to taste it, remember. So even just right. having that in there and it's in the stomach, there's a sense of that. Yeah. But to come back to how many millions of Americans are blocking, are taking something to decrease their hydrochloric acid. Ah, this is... Right. And it's it, it may help those symptoms. Right, right. But it's the antithesis of getting to the root cause. Exactly. So the idea is, are there hygiene things that you can do to try to build that rather than just going in there and blocking it? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a time and a place to block, but we just block, in you know, we just do it all the time. Because we're at the fair. <laughs> because we're at the fair, and we just go ahead and do that. Other things you could do, yeah, so you could take, you know, for example, chewable licorice, like DGL, deglycerized licorice, mm -hmm. where they take the glyceric acid. But licorice... You chew it, it mixes with your saliva and it actually kind of coats your esophagus. So it protects your esophagus from that acid. So now we're not blocking the stomach acid, we're just trying to do something that's a little bit more, um, you know, healing. It's actually encouraging healing. You could use slippery elm as another one, right? Slippery elm is an herb that you can mix with your oatmeal, you can make tea out of it. Marshmallow, and not the marshmallows you're thinking of, but marshmallow, <laughs> you know, tea. Yeah. Again, it's mucilaginous, so it has that ability to coat and protect. So is it possible you could use that instead of blocking the stomach acid? Yes, I would say, why don't we start there? Right. And, and even if you've got to block the stomach acid, I would rather use an antacid than a proton pump inhibitor because an antacid is that point of contact because you're like, whoa, I just ate cheese curds. I'm having a problem here. Okay, take an antacid and block the acid right now, but maybe we don't want to block the acid six hours from now or 12 hours from now. That's what happens with those, the big, you know, the proton pump inhibitors. You take it once a day. Wow. It works throughout the day instead of saying, yeah, but maybe I just at least treat the meal that I made an error at. Right. Makes more sense to me, right? I but but that's, that's going in the, you know, the, you know, we're not starting with a big gun. Let's start with the pea shooter and say, are there other strategies that we can do to try to help this and not go in there and block the function, right? Because I, I think blocking stomach acid I mean, like we talked about, is it more potential that you end up with more potential food allergies or sensitivities because now you're blocking your ability to break down the pro protein properly? Seems I mean, this is this is hypothetical, right? I can't tell you for sure that's true, but I'm just telling you, you know, maybe you're more susceptible to gut bacteria infections. Maybe you're more susceptible to, you know... Um, you know, just this idea that you're not breaking down that protein properly. Right. And now we end up with more allergies or sensitivities because your hydrochloric acid status is low. And how often do you ever say to somebody who says, oh, I've got major allergies. Oh, are you are you taking Prilosec regularly? Or are you yeah, taking, right, you know, right, I mean, right, we don't right. make that connection. So right. And it's it not my job like to take people off medications, but it's the idea that can I still support physiological function while they're doing that. So if they're taking an acid blocker, I'm not going to give them hydrochloric acid. I'm not really going to give them bitters because now I'm contra, you know, now you're stimulating hydrochloric acid and then now you're blocking it. Mm -hmm. It would be just like how, what are other strategies that we can do to try to work on this instead of just blocking the stomach acid, especially if you still have symptoms. 
the perfect time to thank you again for listening to listener-supported WDRT. You're listening to The Skeptical Naturopath with Paul Rattay and Christina DeRocher. want to remind you one more time that on September 9th from 8.30 until 10 o'clock in the morning on Jefferson Street at the Commons, Paul Rattay will be giving his ninth in a series of 12 lectures on, this one is on certainty, the limits of nutritional research. So from 8.30 to 9, you'll have a chance to ask him any questions you may have. And from 9 to 10, he'll um, give the lecture on the limits of nutritional research. Free will donation. Thanks, Christina. Mm -hmm. So we have about 10 minutes, am I right? Um, yeah, eight. Eight Cause minutes? I, well, because I'm six minutes late in my 20 uh, and gotcha. 40 minute. Gotcha, yeah. okay. <laughs> So uh, can we switch gears a little bit? So the other gear I want to talk about is the other really important part. So it seems like I'm spending a lot of time on digestion, but that's kind of what I called it. I didn't say weak absorption, did I? No, you My said class, lazy digestion. Lazy digestion, not lazy absorption, and not lazy elimination. So this is potentially could be a three-parter. Uh-huh. Not <laughs> surprising with yeah, this topic. Yeah, not surprising. <laughs> so the other part of digestion is fat digestion. Right, so that's the other one that I think is important, and it's different. It's a different, different animal, different macronutrient. Yes, so fat is dealt with differently than protein is. Proteins are really complex nature. You've got to denature it. It's a lot of work. It's this pepsin that we need to do that, which will chew all in your intestine. Fat's a little bit different, right? So fat, we need to make something water soluble instead of making it fat soluble. So we have to, we have to emulsify the fats. Right, so emulsification is the idea that we're starting to break down that fat, right? So it's like when you use soap in your dish soap in your, in your, um, in your sink, right? Mm -hmm. So you're using the soap to break down the fat molecule a bit, right, to emulsify it so that water, you can now flush it off. You're making it more water-soluble is what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So the same thing happens in your digestive tract. This is not hydrochloric acid. This is not pepsin, completely different. So this is now where your liver gallbladder gets involved in this, right? So this fat digestion means that you've got this long chain fat. And remember I talked earlier about short chain fatty acids mm -hmm. and even coconut oil being a medium chain triglyceride. Those are things that don't have to be emulsified. So they don't require this. This is why they're beneficial and people will use them for all sorts of different things and take them and they give all this magic to MCT oil. There's really nothing magic to it. It's just that it's a shorter chain fat and it doesn't require this process that I'm talking about now, okay. this emulsification. But anyway, so when you eat fat, the fat's in your stomach. And again, that second brain of yours detects, oh, wow, there's fat here. And it sends a signal to your gallbladder. And that signal is cholecystokinin is the hormone, gut hormone that is um, secreted by the stomach, goes to the gallbladder and tells the gallbladder, hey, you know what, fat's coming and we're gonna need some help here. And the gallbladder says, oh, no problem. And the gallbladder contracts and it squirts out bile, uh -huh. right? So bile is um, basically the byproduct of detoxification in the body, right? So bile is, you could basically call it like the, the uh, toxic metabolites from liver function, right? So the liver makes bile and it drip, drip, drips out of the liver, and then it's stored or concentrated in the gallbladder, right? Just, and bile, just for such a purpose. Yeah, and bile is fats. really expensive, right? It, it's expensive to make that. It's a lot of work on the liver to make bile. Anyway, so that bile is stored in the gallbladder, and it's basically just sitting there. It's We could call it garbage. I'm not quite sure it's garbage. It's garbage residue, right? Um, um, so when we break down hormones and other things, it'll come out as bile. So that bile is like how we get rid of it, but yet we store it, right? We store it in the gallbladder till we eat fat. 
and then that gallbladder contracts and it squirts the bile out and the bile then mixes with the chyme mm -hmm. in the small intestine. So that chyme has all these fatty acids in them and those fatty acids need to be broken down because they weren't really broken down much in the stomach. A little bit, but for the most part, this is where it occurs is in the small intestine, right? So stomach is really more protein. Small intestine is sort of fat and, and carbohydrates too, but um, so that bile is secreted out into that small intestine where then it now mixes with the fat molecules and it emulsifies those fat molecules. It's like making mayonnaise, right? So mayonnaise, you're, you've got that emulsification mm -hmm. that you use and that emulsification mixes it and then it can eventually break or oil and vinegar dressing, right? So you shake, shake it up, it, it emulsifies, mm -hmm. but then it'll separate again. But anyways, that emulsification makes it more water soluble. So now you can actually start to break it down. Okay. Right. And now it's broken down by lipase, and lipase is the pancreatic enzyme from the pancreas, right? So that, again, it's two steps. Things aren't always just like one thing. There's always like two or three right. or four steps. You've got liver, things. gallbladder, and pancreas yeah, now. Yeah, you got all sorts of things, and wow. stomach, and this kind of thing. But anyway, so that liver gallbladder makes that bile, the bile drip, drip, drip out of the liver. It's concentrating in the gallbladder, squirts out. The gallbladder contracts, squirts it out, and then um, furthers the fat digestion. Now, funny thing is that bile then circulates. Now, the bile is in the digestive tract, right? And let's call it the residue, toxic residue. And the funny thing is about 95% of that is reabsorbed back into the body. In where? Back up to the liver. So in the large intestine, we reabsorb 95%. But you're like, hey, wait, that's garbage. Like, we want that out in the stool. Right. So you could do things, this is soluble fiber and other things like that that can help bind some of that bile. So instead of 95% being reabsorbed, maybe 92% is reabsorbed, wow. right? But anyway, so this is like we're recycling, let's call them toxins. <laughs> Why would right. the body do that? Remember, we've got a, we got a wise it, body because here. Because it was expensive to make. Because it's really expensive to make and we constantly need it. And it doesn't make enough to make up for the fact that we're losing it there. Which, which also seems bizarre. It, it doesn't seems make bizarre. enough because but we're it's always... It's drip, 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 right? So yeah. there's, a, there's a constant kind of production of that. I mean, there's a rhythm to that, that the liver will be more sort of making more bile versus making less bile. I mean, there's some variations on the theme, but let's say for the most part, it's drip, 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 right? And we can't keep up with that. We still need the bile. So it's recycling, and then that system happens again. So it goes back up to the liver and stored in the gallbladder. We call that enterohepatic circulation. Of course you do. By far <laughs> and away, perhaps the most important system in the body. It's a circulatory system that's not in the bloodstream. It's, it's part partly in the gut, but it's one that's I'm telling you, lots of people have lots of problems with that. You have gallbladder disease, you have sluggish enteropathic recirculation. Well, and so many people think of the gallbladder as removable, too. Like it is the, removable. The, it's uh, funny. How, how can that be? Well, we drip, drip, drip it, and it sort of is still in the bile duct, and it'll be released. It's just not as not as um, strong. strong of an effect. Okay. But understand, if you have gallstones or it's, or it's really thick bile and you eat fat, what happens? That gallbladder contracts and nothing happens, and then you get a lot of pain, pain on the right side. Oh. Maybe it dumps and then you get diarrhea. I mean, this is a gallbladder attack. Got it. And we look and see and say, your gallbladder is a problem. We need to remove it. But yet, we're not treating the cause. We're treating the symptom. And again, we need that circulation that's so vitally important, and that's this 
I, I mean, I call it liver stagnation. They use that in Chinese medicine, but also, you know, um, you know I guess I could say weak enterohepatic circulation. But understand that circulatory system doesn't just happen when we eat fat. It circulates like 8 to 12 times a day anyways. So even when we're not eating fat, fat just triggers it more. Okay. So this is a really important part of detoxification, too, is that we have that bile moving. We want that moving, and many, many people, that system is not moving very well. And will and bitters happen with that as well? Bitters can have a little bit of overflow on that. So some of those bitter substances like dandelion can affect that gallbladder too. So there you get a little bit of double duty there. But there's generally herbs that are cholagogues and choleretics that work stronger on bile acid production and bile and getting the liver to release the bile. Okay. So like as... artichoke is one. Artichoke is a great herb on that. Okay. Chelidonium, right? There's a, a whole laundry list. But art, but but but. Um, milk thistle can do that a little bit. Um, dandelions can do that a little bit. So there's a little bit of overlap there. Yeah, bitters. So the bitters can also kind of double on the gallbladder. But again, this is the piece of having good digestive hygiene. I mean, how many people do I see with constipation mm-hmm. that take tremendous amounts of fiber? They're still constipated. And the whole idea is, well, maybe your upper GI system's not working. Maybe you don't have good hydrochloric acid production. Maybe you're you're not getting things moving from the top down instead of me coming kind of going from the bottom up, right? So, oh, well, you need more fiber. And don't get me wrong. We, I mean, we don't get a lot of fiber, and that can be beneficial. It's true. It's beneficial. Yeah. But I don't think you have a bowel movement because you eat a lot of fiber. I mean, people on a carnivore diet, you'd think like, oh, my God, did have a bowel movement once every six months. Right. No, but they don't. They don't. And oftentimes they get regular. Yeah. You're like, but I'm not eating any fiber. You don't need fiber to have a bowel movement. Fiber may help it. It's just not necessarily a prerequisite. So it's possible it's a liver gallbladder function, it's hydrochloric acid status. Like those are the things that I see like epidemic, mm-hmm. that we blow out our digestive system. We have weak digestion because we're not engaging those two forces, right? Those, the fat digestive forces, the bile, and the hydrochloric acid forces as well. Scintillating as always and tiny bit tardy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Paul. We'll see you again next month. Thanks so much for listening to The Skeptical Naturopath with Paul Rattay and Christina DeRocher. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.